Well, good morning, Perry Sound, Muskoka. Just want to want to bless you and say welcome today. I'm excited. Um, love baptisms. Love to hear the testimonies from the water, uh, the testimony of life change. And I'm excited to to bring part two of what we talked about last week. If you could turn in your Bible to Matthew 19, that's where I'm going to be today. I'm going to jump around a little bit, not as much as last week. But I'm going to start off in Matthew 19. If you don't have a Bible, just kind of raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring one to you. Just raise your hand high and they'll bring you a Bible. And if, if you don't have one and you, and you need one, just go ahead and take that home. That's our gift to you. Um, but before we jump into Matthew 19, let me, let me do a bit of a recap from last week. If you haven't listened to the sermon um, from last week, I would encourage you to do so because I think some of the things that I talk about today will make more sense uh, in the full context of, uh, of what we talk about both last week and this week. So, so last week we talked about suffering. We're going to talk about suffering again, but, but sp- specifically with suffering and the implications of sanctification. So sanctification is if you're in Christ, if, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, that's the confession of your heart, you've submitted your life to him, then you've been saved, you've been justified, not by any work of your own, not by anything that you bring to the table, because what we bring to the table, scripture would say, is like, is like dung, like it didn't smell good, it's not pleasing to the Lord. In fact, scripture would call it that, not me, so don't, I'm not being edgy to be edgy, scripture would call what we bring to the table, doo-doo, <laughs> Um, and so we are justified not by what we bring to the table. We're justified by Christ and Christ alone. Amen? And then once he saves us, he sanctifies us. So this side of heaven, meaning while we live this life, and, and, and either we're going to go on to meet him because um, we're growing old and our body's wasting away and, and we will pass on, or he cracks the sky open one day and Jesus returns and takes us all home for those who are found in Christ. This side of heaven, he's sanctifying us. And what sanctification means is he's conforming us into the image of his son. So we're saved, we're sealed, and he's working that out in us even though it's sealed. It's called the already, not yet. And one of the main things that God uses to sanctify his people is suffering. So we talked about that the reality is that we're all suffering, all of us. Everyone in this room is setting under and is set through and will set through different types of suffering. Suffering from the effects of our own sin and rebellion. We got a lot of amens on that one last week. Suffering from the effects of the fall that we live in a broken world and creation has been subjected to futility. So I think the example that I used is people get lung cancer who have never smoked a cigarette that creation's been subjected to futility and creation groans as a result because it's not the way that God intended it to be. And then we all suffer from the effects of the sins of others. Got a few amens on that one too. That people sin against people and cause deep hurts and pains in our lives. But then here's the hope that in the midst of all that, God uses all suffering to reveal our hearts that we're blind to what's going on in our hearts and that our hearts are wicked and deceitful and that the heart is the epicenter, it's the soul, it's, it's, what's, it's what's in us, eternality breathed into us and God uses suffering to reveal our hearts and in revealing our hearts, he reveals where our treasure is. And church, when our treasure isn't Christ, God is going to go after that. Not, not maybe. If you're sealed in Christ, he's going to go after your heart every time. And again, amen to that. 
That he hasn't just saved us and left us off here goofing around and we, we're in no man's land. He's saved us and he's drawing us in because he's jealous for those affections that he's created that stir in us. And so we talked about the story of Job. And I, and I, I recapped briefly just Job's story. And, and in essence, in Job's suffering, he comes to a place where his heart's exposed. He worships God after losing everything but his health and his life. And then through a series of more suffering than God, then Job questions God and judges God for quite a few chapters in Job. And the essence of the question that Job answers is why, 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 why? And then God speaks in chapter 38 of Job. And when he speaks, Job is flattened. And Job goes from the place of asking why to who? He says, I heard of you, but now I see you. That in suffering, not only does God reveal our hearts and expose our hearts and reveal sin in our hearts, he, he reveals treasures that aren't Christ. He shows us himself in a way that we've never seen him before. And when you see God like that, you're changed forever. Pe people in this room have had that encounter where you, you thought you knew him, but then you go through some hardships and then you're like, now I've seen you, God. So he takes us from the place of why, which our minds, we can't comprehend why, but we'll ask the question, why God, why God, why God? And then as God presses us, the why doesn't matter as much anymore, does it? And then we see God and we're like, I've seen you. I've seen you. And so now we shift to Matthew 19, we're, we're, we're going to shift away from, from the why to the who, from the why to the what. God uses suffering to bring us to a place of desperate need. That's where we pick up in Matthew 19. So go to verse 13 with me. Then children were brought to him. This is Jesus. Children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. So right out of the gate, these children aren't sick. They're, they're not diseased. They're, they're not ill. Um, it was pretty common for, for mothers or fathers or caretakers of, of babies. These are young children. These are, these are toddlers at the oldest, maybe even infants. And, and it would be common for them to bring their babies before a, a rabbi or a priest, um, in this case, the Lord, they recognized rightly uh, his lordship to be blessed. And so they were bringing children to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Then verse 16, and behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, and he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell your what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So a lot to unpack here. First, if you look in verses 13 through 15, you get this beautiful picture of what God requires. And I'm gonna come back to this, but I wanna reference it first because he's talking about coming to um, him as a little child. And, and children in this time, they weren't seen as a, as a nuisance. Um, they weren't seen as, as less than. Um, their place in culture um, was actually revered. But their place in culture was also expected, like, here's your role as a kid. Listen, learn, and watch. So it's not like, hey, kid, get out of the way. You don't mean as much as everybody else. It was, it was actually to be revered. But their place was understood. Stay out of the way. Watch, listen, and learn. I wish our culture was a bit more like that. I feel like kids kind of rule the universe. I'm like, really? How'd that happen? Anyway, um, children were understood to be on the side, to watch, to listen, to learn. And yet Jesus says, if you don't come to me like one of these, you'll never come to me at all. So Jesus is using the picture of children to model what humility, teachability, and realized need outside of self is. In other words, um, a child is unbelievably dependent, is it not? Now, the older they get, the more dependent they think that they are. I mean, I mean it's just um, like I, I think of every time one of my children has learned to ride their bike. Lots of wobbliness, lots of falls in the get-go, and then they, they learn the balance thing, and man, they're off and running, and then they get a bit cocky. Get a bit cocky, try to pop a wheelie, and they realize they don't have near the balance that they thought they needed to have to pull off such a trick. And, and so it doesn't take much for a child to realize they're compromised. It doesn't take much for a child to realize I'm exposed here. It doesn't take a child much to realize I have lacking or need here. And Jesus is saying, if you never come to me like one of these, you'll never come to me at all. Then he picks up in verse 16, he's talking about the rich man. Other gospels talk about the rich young ruler. It's the same story. It's a very similar story. And and I love right right out of the gate, you see, why do you ask me about good? So Jesus is on to this guy. Jesus can perfectly read this guy's heart. This guy comes to him with with the right question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus turns it on him really quickly. Why do you ask me about what is good? He's saying, basically, there's only one who is good. So Jesus is not allowing anything other than God's will to determine what is good because he knows this guy's heart. He knows that this guy has means, and, and means in this case, money. He's got means, though. He's got things around him that are quickly accessible that he can quickly go to to satisfy any lacking, to satisfy any shortfall. He can quickly go to it and grab it. You don't have to have money to have that kind of means. So this isn't about money, folks. This is about means where we can quickly and readily go to something and access it when we feel a deficiency. When we feel a shortfall, we can quickly tap into this, pull it over here, no more shortfall. Jesus knows that he's got means. Jesus knows that he's kept the law. And so Jesus kind of punks him out a bit. So there's nothing good above God, and he's speaking to that what God's will is and what God says determines is good. 
And then Jesus says to him to keep these different commands. And then the man says, I've done this. I've done this. What's great about this though, there's two things happening. The man knows the morality he brings to the table. Jesus knows this. That's why he said there's only one good thing and that's what God's will is, what God says. So the rich young man realizes his morality that he brings to the table. Jesus also realizes, because the rich man doesn't realize, Jesus realizes that this rich young man also brings plenty of means around him to the table, yet doesn't realize how much he relies on those means for salvation. And I use salvation in quotations. Jesus realizes he's bringing both to the table. The rich young man realizes he brings one, but still asks the question, I've kept all these, what still lacks? And then Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus exposes his saving points. Jesus exposes this man's salvation. And you see a perplexing following from this. The, the rich young man hears the words of Christ and he's disappointed because he knows he can't do it. This is why it's difficult for the rich to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Again, take money out of the picture. When you have means that are readily available and you can quickly access them, when you're in a place of desperation, you go to them early and often. There's no need for a savior outside of that. And Jesus is saying, if you never come to me like a child who knows they have nothing, even if they have everything, you'll never come to me at all. This is indicting on us. This is indicting on us. This is why I think the, the American dream, this Western mindset to have all these possessions so that we can have peace, it's a myth. Because all those means do is blind us to the fact that we need a savior. A savior outside of our means. And if you never come to Jesus like a child, you'll never come to it at all. You'll pick and choose when and where you, ta you tag Jesus onto your life. That is not submission of the heart. That is not a rendering of your soul to the Lord of, of all, Jesus Christ. So my kids um, have always taught me, or I, I should say this, the Lord has always taught me a lot about this truth through my kids. Mainly because my kids are eight and younger, eight down to two. So they're all pretty needy. <laughs> And as a father, in no way do I despise their neediness. It'd be really cruel and wrong for me as a father to despise their neediness in such an age. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. And when my kids are sick, one of my favorite things is when they're sick, extra neediness. And they love to curl up in the arms of mommy and daddy. And it's always been in those moments <laughs> that Jesus whispers to my heart, why don't you come to me like that? They're not acting like they're not sick. They're not resisting the fact that they're in need. They're not trying to fake it till they make it. They know they're in need and they come to the, to the one that they know can help them, their mother and their father. This is the posture of a child. This is the general, general posture of the heart of a child. They recognize they're lacking. They recognize their need. And the answer to that lacking is outside of themselves. It's not in them. 
The answer to their lacking is not around them. It's in something outside of them. So here's my question to us. Where do you go with your lacking? Do you act as if you're not lacking? Do you act as if you have no need? Because you have the means around you? Beware that you're like the rich young man. You have the means that are readily available, and you can quickly tap into them every time you feel some suffering or abrasiveness. The heat turns up, you quickly turn it down by accessing from your means. Might means be damning? You know what I mean by that? When we have a lot around us, there's very little need for Christ. When we have much around us, we're, we're, we're slow to call out on the name of the Lord. But when that is taken away, and all we have is him, he's got our attention, doesn't he? That reality was true even before those things were taken away. And a child recognizes this. A child understands this. Jesus says, if you don't come to me like one of these, you will not come. So recognize need is perfectly dealt with Christ. Go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Start in verse 11. So suffering exposes our deep need. And then it shows us a need for a savior outside of ourselves. Suffering also humbles us. It brings us low. This is the story of the prodigal. And he said, this is Jesus, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of context so you can get, I'm not going to go into the depth of it, but I'm going to give you some context so you can understand what Jesus is talking about. This father has two sons. His father's a wealthy man. The central character of the story is not the prodigal. The central character of the story is the father. And, and when Jesus would tell a parable, a parable is basically him saying, let me tell you this story so you can get a picture of what the kingdom of heaven is like. What, what, let me tell you the story so you can get a better picture of what God is like. So there's this younger son. He comes to his father and he basically says, hey, hey dad, give me what's coming to me. And, and he probably... Dad would actually be a polite way to say it. He probably comes to his dad and say, hey, Pop, why don't you give me what's coming to me? Like really arrogant, unbelievably entitled because he's not supposed to do this. Like father can give it to him when he wants to give it to him. He's coming as the younger one, not even the older one, as the younger one, full of entitlement. And he comes to his father and he says, give me my share of the property. Give me my inheritance. And the father, he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So we don't know how long this took. We don't know how long it took for him to take his inheritance and to squander it. What we do know is that he took his inheritance, he wastes it away over a period of time, and he's about to find himself in a desperate place. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to, a, to, to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. 
and he was longing to be fed with the, with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So this young, entitled boy takes his inheritance, squanders it. He's in a low place. And, and isn't it interesting, in that low place, then a severe famine arose? Like you say, I just need to hit bottom. No one gets to decide what bottom is. Just can I say that? He hits a low place, and then a severe famine arises, and he falls even lower to the point, this would have been a Jewish audience, to the point where this Jewish boy is a pig farmer or working for a pig farmer, craving to eat the wastes that the pigs wouldn't eat. That's, that's as low as you can get is what Christ is saying. Let's see what happens to him. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, literally means he came to his senses. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So he's in the midst of this suffering. More suffering comes. And in this desperate place, he comes to his senses. And, and the, the, the gist of the whole text is, in remembering the love of the Father, he comes to his senses. And, and huge risk here, because th this has implications for what we do with our suffering, what we do in the midst of trial, what we do in the midst of difficulty. If he's revealing our treasures, if, if he's revealing sin, if he's then exposing our need to find a savior outside of our own means. And then he's humbling us and bringing us low so that the only place we can look is up. What do we do when we're, when we're in that low place? The prodigal here remembers the love of the father. And the story goes on that he, that he says to himself, I've sinned against heaven, vertical sin, and I've sinned against my father, horizontal. He gets it right. Just like David in Psalm 51, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against God and God alone. Like he recognizes his sin before the holy God, and then he recognizes the carnage of his sin towards others. And he then has the, just, I think it's, it's, it's audacity to, to then, I got to go to my father. I got to go and make this right. I mean, just secularly speaking, I'd be like, bro, you need to like, just stay gone. Cut your losses and stay gone. You go back to your father culturally, your dad's gonna, he's gonna finish you. He's gonna handle you, bro. Don't do it. But he, he, he takes the risk and he puts himself at the mercy of his father and, and the, the picture of the story is, and this is why the father's essential character of the story, the prodigal throws, throws himself at the feet of his father. But before he can even get there, the father runs to him and the, the son says, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And his father receives him in. In that place of brokenness and suffering and sorrow, he comes to his end. He's lowered. He is humbled. And he looks to God. The question, what do you do when you're suffering? When you've been brought low, where do you look? When you've been humbled, what's your default response? We all have one. Everyone in this room has one. When you've been brought low, the scriptures would say over and over, it's God's grace to bring us low. You know why? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to be under his grace. And everything in my heart that's not of Christ is prideful and proud. And when God lowers me to a position of humility, is it not his grace? Wouldn't it be his, his wrath to leave me in a proud place that wants nothing to do with him? 
Yet he would take me through trial after trial after trial to lower me, to humble me. And then the question remains for us, where do you look when you've been humbled? When you've been lowered, do you harden your heart? Do you shake your fist? That would be the why, God. Why, God? Why, God? It's not a why question. You missed the point. It's who. It's, it's, it's what. God, what are you trying to show me? God, what are you trying to teach me? These are far different questions. One is derived from the flesh, from our own understanding, from a, from a self-sovereign place that seeks to know the mind of God as if we ever could. The other one's from a place of brokenness. I need you, God. Like my child would curl up in my arms. I need you, Daddy. I need you, God. Help me, God. This is where he wants his church. Yeah, we resist this. We resist it over and over. And the father's saying, no, stop. I'm bringing you low for your good. For your good. This is serious. Don't harden your heart to this. Don't arch your back to what the Lord's doing here. This is serious. This is the Lord's grace on our life that he would take us through trial to bring us to our end, to bring us low. And yet we would shake our fist at the king of the universe, that we would judge and question him when the whole time God brings us low, not to ask the question why, but what? What are you trying to teach me, God? So what is humility? I wanted to give you some characteristics of humility. Humility is a focus on God and others. We tend to focus on who? I love me some me. I get up thinking about me. I go to bed thinking about me. I do what best serves me. I eat what I want. I watch what I want. That's why marriage was so hard when I first got married. I'd been single my whole life until I married my wife. Never in my life had I had to discuss what are we going to watch on TV. I watched what I wanted to watch. Now all of a sudden it's up for debate. I never argued about what we were going to eat for dinner. I ate what I want. It was never up for debate. You know what marriage exposed in me? How self-centered I am. Humility is a focus on God and others. This is the greatest command. Matthew 22, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because it's never in doubt that we love ourselves. We take great care of ourselves. So look to others that way is what Jesus is saying. Humility is a focus on God and others. Humility is the pursuit of the recognition and exaltation of God, Christ in all things. God in all things. To God be the glory, all things he has done, the pursuit and recognition and exaltation of God. Humility is a desire to glorify and please God in all things. Humility is the confession of emptiness that receives grace. It's one of the, it's, and I'm going, I'm going back to it, but it's one of the sweetest lessons that the Lord continues to speak to me in my heart 
Every time, in fact, we've had just, y'all have had the same cold that's going around that won't leave. It's been in our house for about a month. And, and so with that comes the, the congestion, some fevers here and there. And, and when, especially when fevers hit my kids, they just curl up in my arms. And, and it's always just this beautiful picture, and I love it. And I hope I never get tired of it. I hope I never stop longing for that. It's this picture of humility is the confession of emptiness that receives grace, that when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, there's nothing but grace, and that grace abounds. That it's beyond your wildest comprehensions of how deep the well of grace is. That it's, it's, a, bottomless, it's a bottomless grace that's abounding for you and for me. So remember Matthew 19, if you never come to me like a little child. So how do we posture our heart? This is a question that, that nags at me. Um, uh, I've heard, I've heard uh, one preacher that I, I really enjoy listening to. He describes humility as um, like God's shadow. Where God goes, humility is. Where God isn't, humility isn't. You can't fake it. You can't conjure it up. So how do we posture ourselves in such a way before a holy God where humility can be birthed in our heart? This is Philippians 2, 5 through 8. I would write this down and, and read this several times and pray this several times next week. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. If you could turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter four. So suffering exposes our, our need, a lacking that can that, that needs to be met outside of ourselves. It's perfectly met in the pers the person and work of Christ Jesus. Suffering humbles us and brings us low. In suffering, we are bound to Christ. First Peter Chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Remember last week when we talked about 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7? He's re-referencing what we talked about last week. So he's saying, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when grief, struggles, trials, difficulties, don't be surprised when they come. He's speaking to believers. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What an unbelievable hope this is. And, and it seems a little bit trite. I mean, he's like, hey, don't be surprised at the fiery trials as if, don't, don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you, what Peter's doing here is he's recognizing the sufferings they're going to. Like, he recognizes them. He's not being trite. He's not glazing over the difficulties they're enduring. He's saying, in the midst of that, 
Here's what brings a meaning. What brings your sorrow meaning is it's behind Christ. Think of it this way. Your story of suffering and pain apart from Christ is a sad, lonely, despairing story. In Christ, you're behind his sufferings and his sufferings conquer death. So don't be surprised not being trite though. Like the, the pastoral feel in First Peter here is unbelievably compassionate. He's like, man, I know what you've gone through. I know it was hard. I remember hearing what you went through and I, and I wept with you. He's not making light of it. But he's saying, but don't lose sight. Your sufferings tie you to Christ's sufferings. Our sufferings pale in comparison to that which Christ Jesus endured on your behalf, on my behalf. Pale in comparison, but not to be minimized. You know what this means? You are not alone. You've not been abandoned. You've not been left alone in the difficulty, in the sorrow, in the pain. You've not been abandoned. Even if everyone abandons you, you're tethered to Christ, and there is no one greater. And his sufferings draw your suffering behind his, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So we learn, this is a, from a, I'm going to read this quote. This is from a, a Puritan named Richard Sibbs. He wrote a, a book called The Bruised Reed. And in a, a quotate, quotation from this book, he says, we learn that we m- must not pass too harsh a judgment upon ourselves or others when God exercise, exercises us with bruising upon bruising. There must be a conformity to our head Christ who was bruised for us that we may know how much we are bound to him. That bruising upon bruising comes our way. And in bringing us low and humbling us, as we open our heart to God, that grace abounds and we're tethered to Christ. We're tethered to Christ. So last week I used the story, um, the narrative of, of uh, Job. I don't, I don't know if you were able to get into Job at all this week, but um, I wanted to use another character from Scripture to, to kind of bring, bring a similar point home. And so I thought of the character of Joseph. Joseph is one of my, um, like he's one of my favorite characters in Scripture. And, and, and one, as I've studied Joseph more over the years, um, I, I've realized some things about myself, how I've probably wrongly interpreted that story at times, but then it's also um, brought um, a, a greater richness to the different levels and layers and the beauties of the gospel. So let me, let me highlight some points of Joseph, and then I'm going to read a couple texts to you from Genesis. Um, the story of Joseph is found at the end of Genesis, and Joseph was the son of Jacob. And in, in, in Genesis 37, you see Joseph is greatly loved by his fathers. He's, he's um, a younger brother. He's, he's one of 12, and he's um, greatly loved by his, his father and greatly despised by his brothers. And his brothers are all quite older than him um, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, for whatever reason, Jacob sought fit to give Joseph this spectacular coat of many colors. I mean, just it was, it was an unbelievable garment that showed him so much honor and showed him so much favor in the eyes of his father. Guess what the older brothers got? Probably more work to go do. 
They got nothing else like that, nothing comparable like that. And then on top of that, Joseph, which you'll see even later in his life, he dreams dreams like crazy. And when he dreams stuff, it happens. And he has these dreams about his brothers bowing down at his feet. And, and, and Joseph's a bit of a young punk. He comes to his brothers and says, hey, guys, I had this dream. You guys are going to be bowing at my feet. I don't think I'd tell my older brothers that story. So he's a bit, bit prideful in that. He's young and dumb. There's an arrogance in youth, is there not? You, you were all young once, so I know that you know this, and the young ones don't, and that just proves they're arrogant. Um, right? I'm young too. I'm arrogant. Easy. Um, but there's an arrogance in him, and he, and he says these dreams, and, and they get so fed up with Joseph that they take him, and then you see that he's, he's thrown into a pit, left for dead. So they sell him into slavery, and then in that slavery, he heads to Egypt. They take him to Egypt. And Potiphar, who's one of the Pharaoh's, um, one of the Pharaoh's leading leaders, um, takes Joseph into his house. And for probably a period of 10 years or so, um, jo Joseph is, is in Potiphar's house. God pours all unbelievable favor on Joseph. And basically everything Joseph touches just works out incredibly. And Potiphar takes notice. Potiphar's wife is a bit sleazy. She likes Joseph. She tries to seduce Joseph, but Joseph is a man of God. She tries to woo him into her bed. And you see in chapter 39, Joseph says, how then do I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he's not even just like, man, I can't. Potiphar's gonna get mad. He says, I can't do this against a holy God. There's no way. So she, she frames him. He wrongfully accused, he's thrown into prison, loses everything. He's already lost his dad. He's already been booted out of, of Canaan, the country, his homeland. He's risen to the top again. Now he's fallen on his face again. He's in prison. God continues to give him favor. He continues to have these dreams, and, and the, and, and, or he's interpreting dreams, and Pharaoh has a dream, and it comes to Joseph, Joseph interprets the dream, and then Pharaoh, the, the, the ruler of Egypt, brings Joseph in as the number two, gives him his signet ring, basically meaning, you're going to call the shots, Joseph. I'm still the dog, the big dog, but you got my signet ring. You're going to call the shots. Joseph rises to an even greater place. And then you see a great famine, or basically the dream that Joseph interpreted is coming to fruition, seven years of plenty, and then the great famine arises. And Joseph's brothers are sent to Egypt by their father, Jacob, thinking that their brother, Joseph, is dead. They've never seen him. They haven't seen him in all these years. They go to Egypt to buy food, and Joseph sees them and presents himself to them. They don't recognize him. And then there's this great dialogue where they go back and get, they get the youngest and he comes back. Joseph sets a trap for them and then Joseph comes to his brothers. <laughs> I don't think I could do this. He comes to, his comes to his brothers and says, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery, the one you left for dead and he forgives them right there. He forgives them. And then chapter 50, here's what it says. Jacob's gone on to be with the Lord. Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear, for, I, for am I in the place of God. They're afraid that now that dad's gone, that Joseph's going to relent his forgiveness and, and take him out. 
and, 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 and Joseph says, do not fear for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. <laughs> to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. A suffering that brings life. And you know, I've always put myself in that story. I've always put myself in the, in the person of Joseph. And I, I think that's wrong. Because this is a shadow of the Messiah to come. This is a shadow of, of the greater Joseph, Jesus. Who was betrayed. Who was abandoned. Wrongfully accused. And forgave many through suffering that brought life. That God is bringing us to our end, church, to humble us so that we might have life. And not just life to get you down the aisle to say the sinner's prayer. The same gospel that saves us, sustains us. The same gospel that saves us, sustains us. We have not been abandoned, church. You have not been left alone. Your suffering is brought meaning behind Christ. That in Christ, you have life. How good is the Lord when our hearts want nothing to do with him to bring us through a season of pain and sorrow and difficulty that we might cry out to, out to him like we never would have like we never should have. But by his grace, he draws us in to his heart. So in suffering, God shows us our deep need for a savior outside of ourselves, Perfectly found in Christ Jesus. Don't harden your heart in a place of brokenness. Don't harden your heart in a place of sorrow and suffering. Because in that place of brokenness, in that trial, in that difficulty, in that suffering, as we open our hearts to God, he brings life to humble us and heal us. So um, just bow your head and close your eyes. So what should our response be to this? If, if humility is something that only comes from God, that we can't conjure it up, we can't fabricate it, what do we do to put our heart in a position to receive that humility, to be humble? I think first and foremost, it's a confession. As a child would go to their parent and curl up in their arms, come to the Lord right now. Confess your need for a savior outside of yourself. We spoke to the sins of pride and idolatry last week, and, and, I, and I would say those areas of our heart, the pride and idolatry, are the means that we readily go to as a Savior outside of Christ Jesus. Confess them once again. There is no means for salvation apart from Christ. Come to him needy. Come to him broken. God ties us to Christ through trials and suffering. But here we find comfort that we are not left alone. If you feel alone today, 
you are not alone. You have a great high priest who sympathizes with you in every way. What hope we have in trial and suffering. Our life finds meaning. That our suffering binds us to Christ who suffered a death that was meant for us. That we get behind the cross. We're not out in front of it anymore. We're behind Christ. And in Christ, we find life which frees us from death. So turn your heart outward and upward. Posture your soul under the mighty hand of God. And so, Lord, we come to you now, and we ask that you would move in this way in our hearts. Where we're hardened in our heart, would you break us? Those callous points, those hardened points, oh God, would you work them out? Would you massage them away? We look to you, oh God. So move in our midst. Break us down and bring us life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.